0: Sweaty startup, Nick Huber, the man who needs no introduction. Greg, what's up, man? You need no introduction because you are a staple of the internet. You've upset enough people on the internet that the people that hate you hate you, but the people that love you love you.
1: I think in order to get people to really be a fan, you have to you have to take a stance on something, right? If you're just middle down the road, everybody thinks you're decent and nobody really likes you that much it's kind of a tough i think that's a tough position to be in if you're gonna you got to pick a side online i think right
0: you do have to pick a side if you want to say something worthwhile and interesting but you on the other hand seem like you're you know how to rile up the crowds is that fair Mm -hmm. to say
1: i think the one of the most fascinating phenomenons to me is that A human being could be going about their day, doing whatever they want. They're living their life. Most of them are in America where you can literally do whatever you want to be doing. You're either with people you chose to be around. You're in a place that you chose to move into. You're working a job that you took a job offer to do. And you're going to open up Twitter and you're going to see something that some stranger named Nick Huber put on the internet. And you're going to get upset by that. Upset to the point where you're going to take time out of your day to to just spew out a bunch of mean things or or tell your friends or talk about it or just have these negative thoughts floating around your head totally mind blowing to me i didn't know that such a large percentage of people were that easily influenced by things that just don't matter at all and are not in their control
0: it's not it's not that it's nick huber saying it it's just that people have strongly held beliefs and then when you say something that's against that belief that really upsets people i think it it goes back to like human beings are tribal And it feels like you're attacking them, even though you're always like joking about it. For example, like tell people about the deck tweet.
1: Yeah, I made a I made a tweet that said I found this stupid picture of a contractor who put a deck on half of a slide glass door on a second level so that literally half the slide glass door, the window part of it was facing outside straight to the ground. But on the other half, there was a deck where one 200 pound person would take up the whole deck. I would get out there and nobody could stand there with me on that deck. And I made a tweet that said, hey, just uh, installed this at one of my rental properties. I raised the rent you know, from $900 to $1,500. The tenant moved out, of course, but I was able to release it at the new higher price right away. Like This is the key to value creation and, and, and wealth building or something <laughs> stupid. And, I, and also just a lot of people hate landlords, man. A lot of people think that residential real estate should be an entitlement and not a for-profit business so so that one really really took off (laughs) (laughs) and took off like how many people saw it 20 million people saw it so Mm -hmm. i don't know a third of the daily active users on twitter probably saw that tweet at some point Mm -hmm. or the other
0: and what does that translate into dollars and business like why why do a tweet like that you know are you doing it for fun or you actually like this will get my name out there it'll translate into dollars
1: so there is something to be said for the fact that the tweet after if you add value, if you teach somebody something, it will be seen by more people. Because if you're scrolling down through Twitter and you avoid and you see a Nick Huber post, but you just continue to scroll on, Elon is a lot less likely to show you the next Nick Huber tweet for sure. Like, it, it, hey, he, you just saw one of these. You didn't click on it. So we're not going to show you. But if you go through and you click on somebody's tweet, you're going to see more of that person. It happens all the time. So Even my true followers, the people who are into business, the people I'm after, they'll click on the deck tweet just to read the replies because the replies are hilarious. So the next tweet then, if I add a lot of value or if I pitch something or something or the other, it'll get, it'll get seen by more people. There's kind of an afterburn of engagement, but yeah, there's no, there's no like massive follower gain. And now, unfortunately on Twitter, you have a ton of people trying to do it and they kind of just, maybe that's what I look like too, but they kind of look like idiots when they don't do it right. (laughs)
0: So we have a friend, Julian Shapiro. He tweets like once a quarter now. Mm-hmm. A and lot. the reason why he got Twitter is because he, he was like, there's a bunch of really smart people on Twitter. And I want those people to read my tweets. Mm-hmm. It's the same reason why we all got on. Um, and not even to read my tweets, but also that I could go and reach out to these really smart people, send them a DM and be like, hey, do you want to grab coffee or whatever?
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's a network accelerant
0: network accelerant now when you're creating tweets that upset a lot of people you might get blocked and some of those people that might block you those are the people that you set out to attract initially so i think a julian will use twitter very differently today than he would a few years ago because he's like i'm only when i drop something on twitter it is going to be fire like it is going to be super well researched it's going to be like nothing else out there. It's going to be a unicorn. You're going to love it. And he doesn't want to play those algorithmic games. Whereas it feels like what you are playing a little bit of algorithmic games mm-hmm. when you're tweeting. I should I should absolutely be more disciplined on Twitter. Absolutely,
1: I'll I'll say that. Like there is not a method to this madness all the time. I half the tweets are doing nothing to for Nick Huber brand there's there's nothing to gain yeah. by making a lot of these tweets that's for sure but like the people who block me i think that's that's also kind of there's an advantage there like I'm, I'm weeding out the people who don't get my sense of humor for one thing take it too personally politically totally disagree with me and people that i wouldn't maybe jive with over time anyway i'm kind of weeding those folks out so i don't mind i don't mind having a couple of true fans and a lot of people who just okay nick nick's not for me and that's perfectly fine It's perfectly
0: fine and the truth is even if you're not saying anything controversial like i don't consider my tweets to be controversial but people mm-hmm. block me all the time <laughs> so this morning a buddy of mine sent me a tweet and and so i go and click on the tweet and i see i can't see it
1: <laughs> that's the best
0: and i and and i'm like who's this guy tom because I can't see it, I had to check it out in incognito mode. It's Tom Sweeney. And I was like, who's Tom Sweeney? He's the CEO of Epic Games. It's like a 20 plus billion dollar company. And all of a sudden I'm like, why did Tom Sweeney block me on Twitter? Like what did I say such that Tom Sweeney, a guy I've never met with, A, I've never met with him before. B, I've never replied or liked any of his tweets. And, and also he's, you know, Epic Games up until very recently was a client of Late Checkout as well. And it was a great experience. So it's like, don't go on Twitter unless you're, you're, you're prepared to have some of your heroes block you. Quick interruption from me. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you're getting any value you need to come to YouTube and subscribe to the Where It Happens podcast YouTube channel. I promise you the experience is richer, more interesting. So if you're getting any value, just stop what you're doing. Open up the YouTube app, go to the website and press subscribe at Where It Happens on YouTube. And if you're watching this on YouTube and you haven't subscribed, what are you doing? Go go press subscribe. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of the show. So I want to shift gears a little bit and and talk more about the Nick Huber world, because it isn't just at sweaty startup on Twitter anymore. There's a bunch of accounts that you're a part of and businesses that you've created on top of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I've talked a lot about recently about multipreneurship, which is this idea around how do you create a company that creates companies? And that's something that you're doing and doing really well. Just like you, I mean, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of stuff that
1: doesn't scale. Entrepreneurship, everybody talks about scalability. Everybody talks about raising capital, about moats, about, you know, world-changing ideas. I think that if you have a, a competitive advantage in one area, you can do regular things that other people do and make really good money. And it can become life-changing money, as you've seen with some of the agencies that you've built. And I think it's it's been really interesting to see our group of friends. You, me, some of our other friends, six other guys who are similarly driven, similar growth strategies, all supporting each other, and all kind of shift towards repeatable, boring, not that scalable businesses. But that when you play the game at a a big level and you know how to delegate, you know how to market, you know how to sell, and you have distribution, you can attract talent, you can build teams, just amazing things can happen. I think you and me have been cheering each other on. You know, since the very beginning of like people are sleeping on agencies, people are sleeping on these businesses that don't scale. So you and I both are kind of seizing the opportunity.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we can say who's in the group. So it's it's me, you, Sahil Bloom, Sean Puri, Sam Parr, Nikita, Nikita Beer, Austin and Austin Reef. That's it, right? (laughs) Julian was a part of the group and he left, (laughs) but it was amicable. So it's interesting because a lot of that group is traditionally been like a venture backed type mentality. Like I raised venture capital, Sam raised money for his, you know, for the hustle. Uh, Sean has raised venture, Austin raised venture, Saho was in a P fund. And it's interesting that we've all kind of just had a collective aha moment, which was distribution matters and just building trust as much as possible on these platforms and then what's a non-venture backable business at least to start that you can build you know Mm -hmm. people call it boring businesses people call it not scalable but you know shepherd is a great example of something that could scale right like that's a business that could be really big
1: yeah it's not that we're not starting businesses that could be really big i think there's examples in all of our And everything that we are doing, from Sam to Austin to you to me to Sean, all the businesses that we're going after, there's examples of massive companies. There's examples of companies that do, you know, 25, 50, 100 plus million dollars a year of revenue. So we're not talking, we're not necessarily talking like a small one man solopreneur journey here. We're just talking about stuff that's already been done before. Like this stuff has all been done. There's marketing agencies, there's pay-per-click agencies, but if you do it well, you're a good salesperson. You're good at building teams. Magic happens, and all of us kind of got that. All it hit us all at the same time, and we were kind of on a race to do boring shit, and make as much money as possible. It's been really fun to watch everybody crush it.
0: I feel like the majority of people in this group chat now have now have like offshoring agencies.
1: <laughs> yeah, Austin's got one. Sean's in with us. Yeah, so it's a uh, yeah. I mean, there's there's great business models and there's poor business models and. <laughs> we, we can all tell the difference
0: <laughs> totally i want to talk about buying a business for a second so at the end of 2022 we bought a business and out of that business was incubated our fastest growing property right now which is uh boringmarketing.com which started off as an ai technology that we ended up spinning up to help brands uh with seo And now I'm hooked on this idea around what else could I buy? Because not only are you buying the assets, but you're really buying a team of operators who have systems and processes. Um, and you can just like on day one, lean into it. So my question to you is you want to be buying more businesses, like what's your framework for thinking about what to buy, how to buy it, what price to buy it at? Mm-hmm. And as much detail as you're willing to share.
1: Buying a business is exciting to me because there is nothing harder than the first seven or eight months of a service business startup. I I own RE Coseg, which is doing 150 grand a month now and has reached escape velocity and is going to be a, an amazing asset. It's a life-changing business that you know Mitchell Baldridge, myself, Dan, and, and Mitchell's wife, Mel, have started. But still at the six month mark, the six month mark, we had a phone call where our operator is near tears. We're selling, we're selling 50 grand a week of cost segs and we can only deliver 10 grand a week of cost segs. We're having massive bottlenecks inside the organization of actually delivering. We had overloaded the company with business. I, <laughs> We were doing a good job promoting on Twitter and it was exploding. That was really, really hard and really, really stressful was sleepless nights for me as as a non-operating partner. And hell for our operating partner, which is Mitchell's wife, Mel. We got through it. She's a badass. The company's going well. But the idea of buying a company that has got that part covered, that is extremely intriguing to me. So how I will think about buying businesses will be the same way that I'm thinking about starting them, which is turning my my cost centers, like looking at my profit and loss statement and looking at where I'm spending money. And the interesting part is like, if you look at the 10 businesses that I've started, eight of them were businesses that I was spending money on it at bolt storage, property and casualty insurance, debt brokerage, cost segs, SEO, link building, performance, marketing, website development, recruiting, all these things were things that I needed as a business owner. And it turns out that if I need them as a business owner, then a lot of the business owners who follow me on Twitter for the management advice and trust me because they listen to my words, they read my newsletter, they listen to my podcast, whatever it might be, they'll need the same type of kind of things that I need. So it's a comfort thing, and I also needed the personal cash flow. Like the personal cash flow is new to me. Like having liquidity, having money in the bank is new. A way to you know risk it all, in my opinion, was to buy a business that was too big and the turnaround fails, and all of a sudden I'm personally guaranteed. The people that I raise money from are, are pissed. I've, I've ruined a reputation. So I'm just now getting to the point where my personal monthly cash flow is starting to stack up enough where I can make take some swings. But I also, I'm kind of thinking about my, you know, Nick Huber Holding Company as a as an accumulation of talent. I'm trying to get talented operators in. I'm trying to get to know them, get to know their strengths, get to know what they're good at. How good are they at building teams? How good are they at you know doing these things inside these companies? And over the course of a year, two years, three years. While we're collecting money, while we're building the bankroll, I'm building this Rolodex of operators that I can, you know, okay, maybe WebRun didn't work. But I know that Will at WebRun is one of the best, you know, team builders in, on the agency side that I know. So I'm going to go with Will. I'm going to buy a company. I'm laying the groundwork of businesses that all companies need. Every company needs a link building service. Every company needs paid ad support. Every, every company needs these things. You know, the cash flow allows me to buy them services allow me to accelerate them and I can own and hold them and either sell them or like my five-year goal is to build my Rolodex full of badass operators that I know and trust. They've come in, they've shown me what they can do. And I think that's kind of the underrated part of me starting these companies. Yes. I, I talked to Andrew Wilkinson on the phone a couple of days ago and he's like, Nick, what are you doing, man? You're starting all these companies. You got to just go buy them. You're you're playing the game on hard mode. And he basically said, Your ability to go buy these companies is going to be dependent on who and how you can hire the operating, the management teams.
0: I was actually sitting in this seat in 2020 when I spoke to Andrew Wilkinson when I was just starting Late Checkout and he gave me basically the same advice. Greg, I don't understand. Why are you starting so many companies? Why are you building so many products? Just go and buy them. Mm -hmm. And my reaction to, to Andrew was, yeah, but it's so much fun. Going zero to one and building from scratch, like mm-hmm. I love coming up with the name, coming up with the brand, do the positioning, like the zero to one, and while i'll I'll always love that, he was right, like it took me a few years yeah. to realize you know what, like okay, <laughs> you know, if going zero to one is art, going one to n is more science mm-hmm. and playing only in zero to one is a bit of a mistake when there's no reason why you or I can't be doing both. Like We can, we can still be incubating and buying.
1: Mm-hmm. If you try to start on third base, if you try to start by just buying a big company and turning it around when you've never operated a small company, you've never started a company, you've never built teams, you've ne- you don't have a ton of experience delegating, it's really hard. But I'm looking forward to these new challenges. And Andrew is absolutely right. You and I are both seeing the light. That you can buy companies and you can pull a couple levers and create millions of dollars out of thin air of equity value and cash flow. That's that's exciting. I think you and I are both going to love that. We're going to love it. You're already proving that you can do it. I'm excited to challenge myself and try to do it, but I'm not there yet.
0: How do you think about what is the right size in terms of purchase price for the first deal?
1: I would buy a company now that has two or three hundred grand of EBITDA. I mean, that's enough. That's enough to you know, hire some decent people. They don't have a management team. At, at two or three hundred grand, the owner is the manager, but they have some people who can execute. They have some client leads. They have some people who can deliver what whatever the services they're delivering. I think that's a beautiful place to start because it can be really low risk. You can get a business really cheap and seller finance almost all of it. And if it crashes and burns, then you hand the keys back and, and walk away. It gets... Tougher for the first one, especially if you go out and need to you know take an SBA loan for hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars and, and you've got to raise money for the equity and it's not rocket science, and I think that people can do it. absolutely can be done, especially if you know how to delegate and build teams, but it just seems riskier to me. but it came down to hey, do I want to buy a business that does two or three hundred grand a year, or do I want to just do the work in six months and get my own business there and save the four six seven hundred thousand dollars I'd have to, to buy that company for?
0: the assumption you're making there is that a hundred percent of your bets are going to make it there, but they're bets, right? Like we incubate mm-hmm. stuff all the time that fails. So mm-hmm. like we'll often put 250 grand into something and try it and it fails. And now, one of the things I'm learning is like all these starts and stops that you're doing mm-hmm. 250 grand here, 150 grand here, 100 grand here, 300 grand here. I'm kind of seeing the light where I'm like, Actually, I want to do less incubation, reduce that budget. Still do incubation, but reduce that budget and take that budget to actually just buy something that's working. Mm -hmm, mm
1: -hmm. I got a question for you, Greg. You know me really well now. Um, Yeah, we are we are friends. You we've been talking weekly, almost daily for three years now. You you've seen how I've evolved. You read my tweets. You you follow along closely. What could I be missing? Like what constructive feedback? I love it i I revel in it and i'm not easily offended like what do you think i'm doing wrong or what do you think i could do better or what what blind spots do you think that i could have or what do you think five years from now i'll look back and say damn i wish i knew that and i would have started doing that earlier now because i feel like you you are five years further ahead than me so
0: so i think that you could be acquiring one to two companies per year And if you, you know, in five years from now, if you're acquiring one to two per year, you have eight companies after five years, I think two of them can be smashing successes, way bigger than anything you've incubated. I think that you're, you're a finance guy at the core. Like you said, seller financing, assuming that everyone is listening to this understands what that means. Like you understand your way around the books. So I think that because you understand distribution and the books and deals, like to me, it makes total sense that you should be buying companies. If I were you, one thing I would do is I wouldn't buy a $200,000, $300,000 EBITDA business. I would go and just say, how much is it to go to an MBA school cost? I don't know, fifty dollars a year. So I'm going to take a budget, my MBA budget. It's going to be fifty dollars And I'm going to buy something for fifty grand. I'm going to do the negotiation myself. I'm gonna, I'm just going to manage the whole process from A to Z and I'm gonna put an operator on it. And assuming this $50,000 investment goes to nothing, but just a way for you to test and hit the tires on this, You know, put it into uh, your audience, see if they like it. And I would also not do a service-based business because I would also wanna test what are other types of businesses, that my audience would like. So I tweeted at you a couple of days ago. um, You were tweeting about Jobber and a few other SaaS products. And I always see you tweeting about these different SaaS products. And I'm kind of like, well, why don't you own one of these SaaS products? Like Mm -hmm. you talk about how, you know, you're building businesses for you, but you're probably spending hundreds, thousands of dollars a month on these SaaS products that you could be owning and actually building for, you and as you know, the multiples on SaaS businesses are a lot higher than the multiples on service businesses. Mm-hmm. So, if I were you, the number one thing I'd be doing is buying a cheap SaaS product, giving it to my audience, iterating from there, writing my learnings after three or six months, and then say, Okay, I did it for 50k. N- now, let me try to buy something with 300 000 to 500,000 in EBITDA.
1: That's good advice. Yeah, I need I need some SaaS products. I need them. I I, yeah. I I know that I know it's on my roadmap. I just need to
0: take it more seriously. I think you're right. And I said it because like we're constantly incubating SaaS products. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that people don't talk about in SaaS land that much is that you can literally incubate a SaaS product in 30 days. You know, I'm old enough to remember like uh, you know five years ago when you wanted any SaaS product, it was two million dollars. Just mm-hmm. co- It cost $2 million to build a SaaS product. That was like pre-product market fit. That's just like a product. Mm-hmm. And now it doesn't cost $2 million anymore. Costs if
1: like, I, how, how much would it cost me to build a Google review aggregator? Because I need Google reviews on every single one of my companies and 63 self-storage facility, you know, brick and mortar locations. I need a way to aggregate and automate getting Google reviews from customers. And so does my entire audience. So should I build that or should I find somebody who had tried to build it and
0: couldn't get any customers and wants to sell it to me for you know, under a hundred grand? I mean, I would start with finding out if that exists somewhere else. One of the ways I typically do that is I go on Product Hunt and Product Hunt has like a sea of fail, failed products. So 99% of the products that are on Product Hunt have failed and you might find something you know from 2015 or 2017 that actually looked really good it's basically a dormant business uh operator might have just lost interest in it you know a lot of people lose interest in these businesses because they're just not seeing traction so if you can come to them and be like hey i'm your traction guy you're the product person like help me revive this i'll give you fifty thousand dollars to do it and i'm going to give you upside i think it's compelling mm-hmm.
1: that's a good idea I'll be on product hunt the rest of the day. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I also think that you could, you can also partner with other people, right? Like you can partner with a firm like ours where like we've done deals where we'll just take upside and mm-hmm. sometimes a little bit of cash, a little upside and partner with people. Um, you know, we've partnered with, Mr. Beast has Night Media and they've built some, some products um, and we've partnered and took equity in some of those. So I also think there's groups like ours, like for people listening to this that like are interested but might not, you know, want to put out a lot of money, like cold call different agencies and partners. And even if on their website it says they're not, they don't do this stuff, like you never know. It's the same thing with hiring a potential employee, right? Someone might have a job, but if you DM them or you send them a message... Who knows? You might catch them on a day where they're having a bad day and they really like what you're doing and all of a sudden you're able to convince them to come join your team. Mm -hmm.
1: I like it. The world is swimming with opportunity. That's for sure. It's almost like you you can't keep your head above water. It's coming so fast sometimes.
0: Do you ever feel like you're doing too many projects at the same time? Because every time I start a project, the analogy I use is it cuts my brain in another section. So if you think about it as like a pizza, you're cutting it in another slice and another slice and another slice and another slice. Mm-hmm. And it's a bit of mental overload. So sometimes, you know, I look at what you're doing and I'm like, whoa, this guy's like working on a lot of projects. Is that just me or how do you feel about it?
1: Yeah, I, I'm i an over-delegator to the extreme, meaning I'm not going to interact with any of the customers I'm not going to have an email address from, for the company. I'm not going to have a job in the company or I'm pissed off. And that's a blessing and a curse. It's a curse because, you know, I it's 80% as good as it would be if I were doing it myself. Like I could do it myself better. But it's a blessing because I can take more shots and I can invest in an operator who I know is awesome. I mean, an example is my property and casualty insurance company, which could be the biggest of all my businesses in, in 10 years the ceo of that company is is my business partner dan hagberg who i went to college with and founded the storage company with and owns half my real estate portfolio and i know he's a killer and i have i have not been on one meeting i have not done anything at all for that company except ask him on the fourth hole of a golf course oh hey by the way how's how's titan risk going other companies are different like not not all operators are as competent as dan but in a way, like they're they're impressing me. Like these people that that are running these companies, they're impressing me. Like I don't, I don't need to talk to the guy who runs my recruiting company, but once a month, and he, we done seventy six thousand dollars of revenue in in the first three months. And the recruiting cycle is like long. The recruiting sales cycle is long. So I don't know. I think I will pull the plug on some, but none of them right now are like, damn, this is the one I probably am going to need to pull the plug on. I like it. I like being able to check in. I like looking at the new leads and all the companies. I like it's kind of addicting to kind of look at the trajectory and the tough part. But yeah, then there's stressful, then there's stressful parts. Of course. It's like one of these companies did some work for my company and it didn't go well. And and Dan's like, Hey Nick, I need to give you some feedback. Uh, this, this was fucking shitty. Like we're going to fire your company here if they don't get their stuff together. I'm like, Oh damn it. That's stressful. <laughs> right. So yeah, it's not all without, it's not all without its stress. That's for sure. But I still spend 10 hours a week on the golf course and 10 hours a week working on my, personal brand and i hang out my family a lot you know so i feel like i have a decent balance but i'm definitely i'm definitely working hard right now that's
0: for sure i like the rule of i don't have an email address
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: it creates this distance between you and, and the business and it's basically and i think andrew does this really well andrew wilkinson which i think he got from charlie munger and warren buffett which is it's all about the operator and we respect and support the operator and we're here to help, but we're not really here to be in the day to day. Like if you're, if mm-hmm. we're, if I'm here in the day to day, then there's an issue with the operating team.
1: Yep, and they're varying level of investments too. Like the property and casualty insurance is a money suck right now. I'm, I'm personally investing thirty grand a month into that one. The business brokerage is another thirty grand a month, and I'm just, I, I'm investing because I believe in those companies, but it's just a longer sales cycle and permitting and requirements and. You know, getting paid on a deal closing when you start a business brokerage, you know, best case scenario is six to nine months after you start the business. So definitely varying levels of personal investment.
0: What about email email newsletters as a form of, you know, nurturing leads? You know, you have a really big newsletter that I subscribe to. I love it. Um, you send weekly emails and in the emails, you, you know, you you, t- you highlight some of your companies. Are you thinking about having individual newsletters for your companies? And is that a big part of the strategy?
1: No, we, we, we've we thought about it. I've had operators bring it up that they want to start writing a newsletter. And I just can't see the value of building a whole nother audience and being responsible for a whole nother newsletter when I can, you know, yet yesterday's e- or Monday's email, I highlighted bold SEO in the top of the email. We got 24 leads, 24 leads. Our sales guy's booked up for the whole week, like his whole week schedule. He's got six calls a day now. So yeah, it's, it's my newsletter is the core strategy. Like Twitter's awesome. The individual Twitter accounts are awesome. We can, you know, reach our customers pretty well on Twitter, but email is where I can really, really, really drive value. I don't do any outside advertising on my newsletter. I don't let anybody pay for spots on my newsletter. I take up all my own space really inside of these companies now. And it's, so far, it's working pretty well. Some some services are harder to sell than others, but some of them, just a lot of business owners need, which is, which is a blessing.
0: Your newsletter is on ConvertKit?
1: Yep. Love ConvertKit.
0: You? And yeah, right. So right now I'm thinking, I'm thinking about switching from Substack to ConvertKit. Sell me on why I should move from Substack t- to ConvertKit.
1: Uh, ConvertKit is really good link tracking. I can change the links after I send emails out. I can you know, stack sequences on. So I, I know that if somebody clicks on the bold SEO link, I can then drip them three more emails over the next week about SEO services because I know they're a pretty warm lead, even though they didn't fill out the form on boldseo.com. So yeah, it's it's just the customizability. If you're If you're gonna start promoting and selling on your newsletter, it's really good for that. I don't even utilize it fully, but then there's the creator network of like, Everybody being able to recommend each other, that you know the quality of the emails aside, and I know that you know three out of four might be a total joke. Um, you were you were bringing up some stuff this week about how like it could it could be getting just a lot of confusion among people not even knowing they're signing up for my email list, but that's still been I've still noticed like a uptick in like the the sales which are important to me, and and at, at two or three bucks a an email, it's it's worth that. So yeah, it's it's all. ConvertKit just does a good job, but Beehive Substack—they're all they're all doing similar stuff now too. So,
0: yeah, the Beehive—we use Beehive for you probably need a robot, which are AI, our AI newsletter, and it's really amazing for for just like you want to get a message out there and you want to push it out in a really beautiful way. And I love at the end of each Beehive newsletter, you can say like, "Do you like it? Did you not like it?" Mm-hmm, and there's almost mm-hmm. like a comment section. You get to understand. How valuable the email was to someone. And that's my favorite part about Beehive. But if you're actually trying to sell stuff, convert kit with the automations, i.e., like what you're saying, you click this. Therefore, I'm going to put you in this drip FOMO sequence of, mm-hmm. you know, teaching people about SEO, for example, before they buy it. Right. There's so many people who might click on your SEO link or your RE Coseg link and just not be ready to buy. Uh mm-hmm. so they're in this phase and it's like how do you nurture them and build trust during that that time so that uh you know maybe after the 5 email sequence they're they're ready to make the jump. The most valuable part for me, I haven't even really
1: utilized like my marketing team, we have a plan to really utilize these sequences to like you're saying nurture these leads. I don't do it well yet. What's the like Lead magnets are like the best way that I can get high value people on my newsletter. Like, hey, yes, here's a PDF. It's free. All you gotta do is give me your email. Here's some awesome copy on Twitter. Why you should click the link and why you should get it. I wish I could share my screen and just show you like all my I can track all my pages, all my lead magnets. I can see how many people visited the page, how many people signed up through that lead magnet. It tagged them. So I know which of my subscribers came from like a really high value real estate, like somebody who signs up through Hey, here's the 20 aspects of closing a real estate deal. I know that the 450 people who signed up through that lead magnet, like they're in the real estate game. They're valuable. Those followers are worth 20 bucks a pop or or more. But I know that the people who clicked on like, oh, here's a list of 200 plus business ideas. I know that they're all entrepreneurs and that's fine too. But I have all that like separated inside of ConvertKit and I can post these um, lead magnets on a schedule over and over and over again. And I can track how many people are signing up on each one. Which ones are hitting? How they're hitting? the like Different copy changes and stuff like that. So Substack have like
0: no magnitude where you can like no, not even close. Like not even close. Substack mm-hmm. is the fastest way to get up and running if you want to create a newsletter. Mm-hmm. So when I'm doing anything, if I'm trying to post on TikTok if I'm trying to and they don't post on TikTok, TikTok. If I'm trying to post on Instagram and I don't post on Instagram. If I'm trying to buy a business and I'm not and I've never bought a business, I always ask myself, what is the path of re- least resistance so that I can see if I like this thing? So I chose Substack, you know, three, four years ago because it was so easy to do. It got set up in 30 seconds. Now, you know, I think it's important for people to in whatever it is they're doing to quarterly or yearly ask themselves, like, what has changed between now and then? And for me personally, what has changed is I now have 70 plus thousand subscribers. I'm also selling some of my services within my email newsletter and my open rate is starting to really go up and my click through rate is going up. So I'm starting to really build trust with people. And Substack just doesn't give me the tools I need, you know. The tagline for ConvertKit should be take email seriously. Mm -hmm. Like if ConvertKit hired Late Checkout, our design and branding agency, we would probably do something around that. And we would try to own the category of taking email seriously. I mean, my dream, to be honest, is a mix of beehives design and like polls with convert kits serious automations like that's my I wonder dream when even.
1: i wonder yeah it, it was amazing to watch convert kit just take over drip like drip used to be the one like three years ago drip was the only one people used, and it's just been a slow move to convert kit but i wonder when nathan is going to add you know the the design forward front end to convert it would be easy to, to do those polls and, to, and to i mean i hit the- him
0: up i hit him up mm-hmm. the other day and i was like dude hire late checkout we'll crush it for you so maybe soon <laughs>
1: i'll tell him to hire I'll, I'll text him right now tell him to hire late like, check out
0: <clears throat> i gotta run but dude thank you for letting me and everyone take a peek inside your multipreneur brain i think the world of you and you're doing incredible stuff and i can't wait to see what you build over the next three years and bye
1: <laughs> i appreciate it man you're a you're a pretty serious influence in my life and I look up to you a lot and I I appreciate the the fact that you want to see me win man and I I want to see you win and I know you're I know you're crushing it so appreciate you having me on and thanks for everything.
0: All right man. I'll catch you later. Where could people sign up to your newsletter?
1: Yeah, I mean the newsletter is how you get to know Nick Huber. I mean I I write a 1500 word email every week about management, delegation, hiring, recruiting, building companies, real estate. So yeah, go to sweatystartup.com and get my newsletter.
0: Love it. Later. Thanks, Greg.